Well, hello everyone, and thank you so much for joining me on another Table Talk. I wanted to let you know that tonight's segment is gonna be a little bit different than how we normally have our Table Talks. Uh, at the request of my special guests, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, we are only doing audio because their setup wouldn't allow for all of us to be on the camera at the same time. So tonight will be audio only. But I wanted to take this moment to just thank every single one of you that have lately subscribed to our channel. Welcome new subscribers. And thank you for all of you that have subscribed for a very long time and are avid listeners of Table Talk. So I wanna thank you for that. Be sure to like and share this content and interact also in the comments. We appreciate you coming on and I can't wait for you to listen to tonight's Table Talk. It's gonna be a really good one. Take a listen and take care. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Table Talk. Welcome once again, a program where we dive uh, deeper uh, into deeper content uh, from a biblical perspective. And I'm your host, Yvette Gallinar. And today I have with me two very special guests, uh, Derek Gilbert, who's been on the program before, one of the favorites that we have. And today I am super honored and excited to have his lovely wife, Sharon, with us. So welcome to Table Talk. Thank you so very much for having us, Yvette. It's an honor to be here. It really is. It's an honor for me to have you here. And I thank you so much for your time. I'm super happy and stoked to go into a ton of subjects. I'm sure that uh, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, but many viewers uh, will remember uh, Derek from before. And what I want to do for just the next few moments is introduce the both of you. Uh, for those of you that may not know, uh, but come on now, who doesn't know the Gilberts? <laughs> oh, I'd say probably a lot of people. Yeah. Well, in this fear, in this in this uh, aspect, I think that a lot of people know you guys. And uh, me, I to me, it's it's kind of interesting because I think I mentioned it to you before, Derek, when we met the first time that I was kind of like, woo, I've been following Derek and Sharon for a long time. And wow, I have them here on my computer and <laughs> here we are talking. So this it was really, really cool to have you guys. Uh, I'm a fan. Let's just say that I'm a fan. Oh, God bless you. You know, we're just, we're all part of the body of Christ and we're trying Amen. to do what he calls us to do. Amen That's to it. that. Amen to that. Uh, but here's some intro here. Um, Derek uh, Gilbert uh, hosts the Daily News uh, Analysis Program 5 and 10. I love watching 5 and 10 all the time for Skywatch TV. And uh, you co-host Sci Friday and Unraveling Reve Revelation, which is one of my favorites, with Sharon, as a matter of fact. Um, Derek is the author and ground uh, one of the groundbreaking books uh, here, I'm going to list a, a few of your books, Bad Moon Rising, uh, The Great Inception, The Clash of the Titans, or Last Clash of the Titans, I should say. Oh, that's one of my all-time favorites, I have to have to say. Uh, Thank you. Giants, Gods, and Dragons, which uh, was co-authored um, by Sharon, or you, you and Sharon co-authored that one, mm -hmm. uh, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. I know we touched on it last time. Veneration, as well, is one of my favorites. Um, you also co-wrote The Day the Earth Stands Still uh, with Josh Peck, which yeah. is a very interesting book as well. And uh, then your latest is The Second Coming of Saturn. 
Mm-hmm. Did I get all those? Did I miss yes. any? Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't get his fiction. He's written a couple of fiction books, which I think are tremendous. The God Conspiracy and also Iron Dragons. There we go. Yeah, they're both really good. Yeah, the follow-up to The God Conspiracy is going to feature that uh, weird thing I told you about uh, via email last night in, right. in St. Louis, some of the strange architecture of St. Louis. Yes. Yeah, spoilers. Yeah. Spoiler. Oh, spoiler. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> And then Sharon, uh, here here we go with some Sharon information. Uh-huh. Science, writing, opera, and mm-hmm. geopolitics are just a few of the many hats worn by Sharon Gilbert. Uh, she's the author of the nonfiction work Ebola and the Fourth Horseman of the Apocalypse, the Laodicea Chronicles, um, the Armageddon Strain, and then you've got your most recent endeavor, the Red Wing saga which is a supernatural thriller series set in england during the time of jack the ripper Mm -hmm. and uh, you're also a regular contributor to tom horn's uh, immensely popular multi-author books including blood on the altar god's ghostbusters i predict and when once we were a nation yes wow yeah Mm-hmm. Did I miss any there, Sharon? There are a couple of others that. Uh, oh, the milieu. Uh, but also you also wrote the, the 2025 book, Zeitgeist 2025, yeah. and you I wrote see. the opening chapter, the fictional section of the Wormwood Prophecy. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. It's funny when when Tom asked me to write that, I just assumed it was going to be one of those things where uncredited and in the book it actually is uncredited. But Tom, every time he goes on a talk show, he says, "Well, Sharon Gilbert wrote the open to this," so. I don't mind telling people that because yeah. he can. He says, "Of course, very gracious." I remember reading that um, that one and Zeitgeist uh, twenty twenty five. I remember reading those a while ago. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's right. Um, you contributed to that. That's awesome. The you know some of these books that um, you wrote are all of these books. I should say that you uh, have written are right up my alley because I personally love reading nonfiction work uh, like that, like those. I am in the process of finishing up my own um, that are kind of right around right around the same lines of the unseen realm, the supernatural oh, yeah. happens oh, in the good. supernatural realm. So I, I can't wait to share that uh, book with you guys. You know, it makes me so happy that and, and excited to see the Lord work through a variety of authors, because as with the Bible, which has a variety of authors mm-hmm. it's right. the same message right through all of these authors and each one is a little different like isaiah i love his wordplay oh yeah and then right. uh, mark who is very excited about getting everything done really fast and then they and then suddenly yeah and then suddenly, immediately. immediately yeah yeah <laughs> so you've got their personalities and that's what he's, he's still doing that today that's he so true teaching through a variety of personalities yeah wow. one of the most exciting things we think in the last year is that jonathan Kahn came out with his book return of the gods oh mm-hmm. we're so excited about right. that because he's seeing the same thing we are right so to me that that's just confirmation that yes. we're on track of someone who is as insightful yes and and with such an understanding of the original languages as Khan, i I'm, i was really happy yeah yeah i immediately purchased that one because when i saw that i thought the same thing as you i said i thought wow this this topic is something that is on the rise how mm-hmm. how long ago would you say would you say the the recent five years maybe more recent what would you say well, it's really ramped up in the last five or six years or so. Mike Heiser right. has been working uh, 
in this field since about 2003, which is about the time that we discovered mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Um, another yeah. friend of ours, Peter Goodgame, who had cited Mike's work in his book, which he'd published online called Red Moon Rising. And right. also spoke at the first Ancient of Days conference. Right, right, right. So we were following the speakers there. That's how we followed uh, Mike and also um, David Flynn. Yes. And Tom. Um, yeah. And he began, we, we interviewed him early on in our podcast PID radio back in 2005, which we, we launched it in March of 2005, like six months after they invented the code for syndicating podcasts. And uh, Mike was very gracious because we had such a Rube Goldberg contraption for doing phone interviews back in the time. It involved yeah. using our cordless house phone and a couple of, you know, device with a couple of alligator oh. clips, one for the receiver, one for the, and that plugged into something else that plugged into our Sony Handycam that plugged into my laptop. Yes, because the Handycam was digital, therefore it was taking the analog signal and, right. and making it digital to go into the computer. But we had to have the battery charged because if you plugged it in, you got a really nasty 60 hertz buzz through the yeah. whole thing. So it was really, but Mike but was very gracious with so his time. So gracious with us. And then the fact that that little contraption worked in the first place what, always yeah. amazed me because once I got to the computer, there were several other steps that we had to, all of this stuff had to be downloaded, like something called Soundflower. Yeah, Just yeah. Crazy things. But the Lord made it work. And each time we said, okay, in fact, when we started it, we decided that we were going to do our, our very first program is just the two of Here, us. Yeah, buy thought, our books. Wait a minute. Let's do some interviews. Well, how do we do that? And we prayed about it. And the Lord's answer was, you've got everything you need. Wow. Yeah. And and that's that's how we came up with that idea, that except, crazy contraption. Except for the $5 doohickey from Radio Shack. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So once we had the doohickey, then we, were, then we were set. Well, we couldn't do it today. Radio Shack doesn't exist. That's true. That's true. But uh, Mike started sharing with us a book that at the time was under the working title, The Myth That Is True. Mm -hmm. And uh, that developed over the years. And when Faith Life Publishing, uh, which is the company behind Logos Bible Software, decided to publish it, they changed the title to The Unseen Realm, which probably goes over better with Christians than The Myth That Is True. Oh, absolutely. Always telling us that myths are true. Okay, no, not buying that. Right. But the Can unseen explain realm. Explain the real meaning of the word myth. It, exactly. It's like a lot of other things in the Bible. We see the English word and assume that that's what the original Hebrew author or Greek author mm -hmm. or Aramaic author meant. But for, we forget there are levels of translation in between. Yeah. Um, but Mike's unseen realm was foundational for us because mm -hmm. it t totally changed our worldview. Mm -hmm. change the way we read the Bible, but obviously then that changes your entire worldview. Correct. So that really led to what we're doing now, Absolutely. because once we started down that path, it's like in the movie, they live once you put on the special sunglasses and you see the monsters, you can't unsee. You can't unsee it. Seen. Um, so that really helped transform things. And uh, it, it that led to our greater involvement with uh uh, say prophecy watchers and uh, their their conferences and our love of archaeology. I've, well, you and I've I have always loved archaeology, but now we have a reason to actually go and and see the sites and talk to the archaeologists. Yes, because the Bible is true. Yeah, and the rocks are telling the story. Right, they're verifying what's in the Bible. Yeah, so true. So, through the partnership with Tom Horn, which began eight years ago, um, that brought us here and, and freed us to do this full-time basically research write produce content uh tom has always been kind of in this area so tom i i 
with, with us, with Josh Peck, with, with others, has been very gracious about uh, facilitating our ability to get the message out there. And of course, Tom uh, and Mike were, were good friends. Tom wanted to hire Mike as a scholar in residence for Skywatch no. TV. But Mike was in the process of uh, moving to Jacksonville, Florida, to take a position with Stovall Weems Church there. Okay. And so otherwise, you know, had that not happened, Mike might have been our neighbors here in the Ozarks, oh, Mike yeah. and Drina. I think they'd have loved it. But Tom, following God's leading, yeah. you know, for, for all of the, the, the critics out there who say, well, he sensationalizes the Bible and he's all about giants and whatever, he really has facilitated a lot of the research by publishing Mike's books, the uns, not the unseen realm, reversing Hermon, mm-hmm. right, and Reader's Companion to the Book of Enoch, right, two volumes which cover the first seventy-one chapters. Those are really, really important scholarly contributions to sure. the uh, the body of Christ, and uh, so we're just honored that we've been able to yeah. benefit from that, and then take Mike's research, primary research. And then apply it to the Bible. And as Sharon said, we start looking at that and then comparing it with what secular archaeologists are doing. Like, well, okay, they may not see the picture, but we see where that piece of the puzzle fits. And it's helping us to show our our brothers and sisters in the Lord that we are not following Jesus blindly. The evidence is there. Right. In the stones, the the evidence is there in the texts, the eyewitness testimony, and we, so we can know that we know that we know. We can use this information to yeah. protect our children, our grandchildren, right. nieces and nephews, yeah. from the the lies of the enemy. And get kids excited, get yes. get adults excited, get us all excited about reading the Bible. Exactly. Once kids realize that there are giants and dragons in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. what? Yeah. yeah. Lord of the Rings, only bigger right. and real. Right. And really, you know, some of the things that archaeologists are finding are uh, are just as exciting to me as like that first Indiana Jones movie, mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Because it's real. Now, the Ark of the Covenant obviously is real, but in Scripture, it's, uh, you know, Jeremiah says it's not going to be seen anymore until... We see it open, you know, in, in the throne room of God in the book of Revelation. But there are other things that are being discovered. Now, scholars, even the minimalist scholars, those who believe the Bible is only marginally true. It basically was rewritten to give the Israelis an origin story and that kind of thing. Um, saying, well, okay, well, it looks like the kingdom of David not only existed, but was pretty powerful in, mm-hmm. in, in its day mm-hmm. because the stones are crying out as mm-hmm. archaeologists make more discovery. Oh yeah. This, the, the, I guess Hebrew was a written language hundreds of years before we thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's not eighth century BC. It's now they've pushed it back to like 13th century BC. And our friend, Dr. Doug Petrovich would argue 19th century mm-hmm. BC. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the, the stuff that's in the Bible is not only true, but with each passing month, there's more archaeological evidence that supports the narrative in the Bible. It's never ending. I see it as a picture of, you know, those um, uh, connect the dots. Uh, does oh, that make yeah. sense? Rem- you know, remember how you, we used to do that with we were kids? And, oh, yeah. You know, connect the dots. One, and, one and two and then yeah. three. And, and then all of a sudden you make this picture. Mm-hmm. And and I, I see everything that we just talked about and 
what we were just saying, uh, what you were just saying a moment ago, that maybe about five years ago, six years ago is when, you know, this subject matter um, that connects with so many other subject matters that pertain to the Bible and make the Bible come alive. And not only that, but also proves that the Bible is true. Mm -hmm. All of these things to me are like a connect the dots. And, mm -hmm. and, and the Lord is doing that. Yes, the Lord yes. is doing that with his children, with his people, you and I, and, and, and it, and it brings, um, maybe I, I don't like to say the word maybe because people will think it's kind of too new agey, but it brings enlightenment. It brings, well, it does, it does. It, it illuminates, it, shines the spotlight on the things of God on, exactly, on, on levels. Exactly. Those, what Derek and I, our ministry from the very beginning has been called uh, peering into darkness. And the reason for that is because we consider ourselves uh, spies in the camp. We want to mm -hmm. understand how the enemy sees humanity and right. what their plans are. It's just a, a battlefield, you know, strategy. And that's why we look at all of these things. But as you look at these things, you do, you see the Lord shining light into darkness mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And it is so exciting yes, it to is. watch him work. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, that reminds me a lot of, and you will probably re remember this, but um, do you remember Frank Peretti? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he, that's why I write the Red Wing saga. I was about I was about to ask you exactly that, Sharon, because to me, it sounds like you, you, you like me are wanting to put the spotlight on this subject exactly. matter. And that's why I'm sure that that's why you write these supernatural thrillers. Yes. Right. And it reminds me a lot about, um, uh, the piercing the darkness, this present darkness, Frank Peretti mm -hmm. books, those to me were not just fascinating, but to me, so many years back really did open my mind to that. There is this spiritual supernatural realm that is unseen to us, but at the same time is very much true and, and physical. It, it, it reflects on the material. It reflects on the natural. Um, so would would you agree with that, that this is one of the reasons why you write these supernatural thrillers? Oh, absolutely. From the time I was a, a young child, I talked to the Lord and I often tell people I probably accepted him as my savior as soon as I could even rationalize that three years old, whatever. But my parents didn't think I was old enough to understand what I was doing. And therefore, mm -hmm. making that public uh, you know, declaration at church was something they had me you know, wait for finally at nine years old. Okay. You're old enough. We think you, you know what you're doing. So publicly I became a Christian at nine, but I've been one for years as part of that childhood understanding that the Lord is real and that he created everything. And he is there to talk to even children. I also would see things. Hmm. Now I don't often see into the darkness, but as a child, I did a lot. Hmm. And there were for one example is one evening as I was lying in bed and, and we had a very small house. There were six kids and, and the two parents and, and there were only, uh, there was one bedroom. I kid you not. There was one bedroom. Mm -hmm. So this big bedroom had two large twin beds, uh, sorry, full size beds and a crib in it. And then the utility room had been uh, a bed, sort of a camp bed, but had been put it in there, in there and then another one in our garage. 
at least we did have an attached garage, so that was good. And this was before we moved to the farm, which is where we had more space. But when I was very small, we had this tiny, tiny space. So I was the first one who went to bed that night. So I was in this huge space all by myself. And I looked over at the wall opposite this bed that I shared with two other sisters. Um, and there, if, if you know what the, the uh, Hollywood Squares looks like, Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So these little boxes, like a tic-tac-toe board, all these boxes yes. with heads in them, people talking. Yes. I saw heads on this wall Wow. and they were talking to one another, maybe, I don't know, 15, 16 heads. And they were all talking to one another and they looked human. And I was watching them and trying to figure out what it was they were saying. And I realized that they were talking about me. Hmm. But, you know, I was only maybe five years old and I couldn't really perceive a whole lot beyond that. And then one of the women, one of the females, and it may have been the one in the very center, she looked at me and then looked at another one right next to her and said, she sees us. Wow. So that's, I I would see that. There were times I saw snakes underneath my bed. Hmm. Uh, There were other times that I would see snakes um, just in the yard that were there or were not there. I was followed by snakes a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would see shadow men in the house sometimes and shadow people. That is a phenomenon mm-hmm. that affects a lot of mm-hmm. children. And the more we get close to the return of Christ, the more children are seeing these creatures. And some of them, these shadow people, are described as the man in the hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why in the Red Wing saga, I have one of, several of my characters who can see into the spirit realm because mm-hmm. we are all in a spiritual space. Sure. It's just we can only perceive part of it. Sure. The, in the spirit realm, they see these shadows, and they're often described in, in, in my works as having these tall hats. That's the shadow people that kids are seeing all over the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We interviewed a guy years ago who had actually written about the hat man. Yeah, um, I've done actually done a couple of interviews. One was, and I, I'm not going to remember his name, Jason Offit. That's Jason right. Offit. Yes, uh, right. Yeah, about shadow people. Yeah. Uh, but there was another uh, young man I interviewed a while back about uh, Hat Man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's uh, good. What's so weird about Hat Man is this actually connects to the building that Derek was speaking to you about, wrote to you about last night. Right. The, in, in St. Louis. Yeah. Yes. Well, wow. well, in that same, he'll talk about the building in a minute, but in that same area, there's a tall statue that looks just like this hat man. Wow. Yeah. There's, wow. it's really strange. Um, our, our daughter, I, I spent the, uh, the weekend with our daughter, Nicole, um, in St. Louis, kind of an annual Father's Day thing. Usually go to try to catch a uh, Cubs-Cardinals game, but they played their games in London this year, so that was out. So we went to see the Yankees instead. But while we were in town... Um, I said, well, I'd like to go visit a couple of places because we had nothing on the schedule for Saturday other than, you know, eat food. Um, <laughs> so we did that. And uh, it's like, OK, what now? Well, I, I had learned through uh, genealogical research that uh, I've got three great, great uncles. So my grandfather's paternal uncles who are buried in the cemetery in South City. And so we went and found them. Uh, that was a surprise to me because I, I thought when I'd moved to St. Louis in 1989, I was the first of our family that had moved there. But it turns out that wasn't the case. Uh, but while we were there, I said, well, I'd like to go visit this little place called City Garden. 
It's a statue park or sculpture park, which is across the street from a building that uh, used to be one Bell Plaza in St. Louis. It was formerly the Southwestern Bell uh, headquarters building, and then AT&T took it over. And shortly after taking it over, they said, okay, we're, we're going to move out. <laughs> so the building has been vacant since 2014. It's the largest commercial building in the state of Missouri. And it's been sitting vacant now for nine years. It's at 909 Chestnut. It's at 9th and Chestnut in uh, in downtown St. Louis. Now, interesting. 909, mm -hmm. that's 3 plus 3 plus 3 and 3 oh, plus wow. 3 plus 3, mm -hmm. which when you add that together, you get 666. Now, I, I try not to go too far in those directions. But it's <laughs> weird that that building, which uh, was built back in the 90s, I think, and the last time it sold, it sold in like 2000 eight or nine for like 200 million dollars it sold it for closure oh just a few years ago for four million wow so somebody took a 196 million dollar bath on that building hmm. um it, and i don't know what the developers are going to do with it but it, it's still vacant as of uh, this recording but as we were heading towards this building coming up from south city i suddenly noticed this ziggurat at the top of the skyline like Nicole, why is there a ziggurat in in downtown St. Louis? She said, "I never saw that before." <laughs> well, it's been there since 1930. It's the Civil Courts Building on Market Street in St. Louis, and when they built it back in the uh, late 20s, it opened in 1930. It uh, has a top on the building that was supposed to be a sort of a replica of a very famous building, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, called the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, which is in what is now Northern Turkey. Uh, that was the domain back in the, oh, when it, whenever it was built, I forget now, third or fourth century BC, uh, of a king named Mausolus, hence Mausoleum. Old hmm. King Mausolus has given us his name every time we think of a place of the dead. It's a mausoleum. Well, right. I'm sure that's not the legacy he wanted to live Probably. or leave. But um, the main difference between his final resting place in this building is that on top of the building, in Turkey, uh, it, it was there was a sculpture of King Mausolus driving a four-horse chariot. And on the one in St. Louis, they've got two griffins. They had him driving a four-horse chariot? Yeah, four-horse chariot. chariot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like Apollo. Yeah, sort exactly. Of. Yeah. But on this one in St. Louis, they put two griffins facing outward, but their wings are going backward like the cherubim or cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. And that's what I saw as we were driving in. It's like, okay. Mm -hmm. There's a Greek temple topped by a Mesopotamian ziggurat with two caravim on top of that. What is that about? And it had how many levels, you said? 13, right? It's, 13. It's a, when it's you count the top level, there's 13. It's, well, it's a 13-story building. But yes, there are 13 steps on this ziggurat when you yeah. include the top. Of, so you've got a 13 right. on top of another 13. And like, okay, and that's where the civil court and the probate court and, you know, meet. Right. When you have caravim, it means that it is supposed to be a holy space. And so the God, right. the chief deity, sits between them. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. That's right. what you see in the book of Revelation. That's what you see oh. in other places in the Old Testament, that his throne mm -hmm. sits within this holy space. Yes, God is enthroned above the caravim. So what they have designed there is an assembly Mm. Not divine assembly. This is not where our true creator sits. This is right. where some other deity sits. Essentially, they and I would argue if that it was originally one Baal. Oh, sorry, Bell Plaza. 
<laughs> that may tell us who was sitting there. Yeah, it's you're right. What they've done is they've recreated Babel or a representation right. of Babel mm -hmm. back in 1930, just above, you know, downtown St. Louis. Now, 909 Chestnut is just to the northeast of it. It's like a kitty corner across the block. And facing this, okay, um, so just to the east of the Civil Courts building and just to the south of 909 Chestnut is this City Garden Sculpture Park. And facing the building, facing 909 Chestnut, is this all-black statue of a guy wearing a stovepipe hat. It's officially called Scarecrow, but it does look like the Shadow Man mm -hmm. or the Hat Man that people mm -hmm. report seeing during night terrors. It looks like something out of Creepypasta. It does. It, Slender Man, sort of. Yes, well, except without the octopus arms in the back. Yeah, and, and Slender Man doesn't wear a... You know, no, but it does look like the Shadow Man. And what's even weirder, right. didn't you look it up and see that that building lines up perfectly with the well, gateway yeah, arch? Yeah, it's uh, the, the uh, Civil Courts building. When you look at it from the Illinois side, and you can do this on Google Earth. I, I was playing around with this. In fact, mm. I didn't send you the picture, but I... Uh, you will. Or did I? Yeah, yeah, I will. Anyway, as you look straight through the arch, straight up Market Street, You've got the old courthouse, first of all, which has got a dome on it, well, inspired by the uh, the Pantheon, Pantheon in Rome, right. um, U.S. capital sort of thing. Uh, so you've got the old courthouse. There's beyond that is a place called Keener Plaza, uh, where I once sung with a barbershop quartet, by the oh, way. Did you? Yeah, yeah. There doesn't have to be a, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? A, a pool and a... Yes, exactly. Um, I'd have to look at the map. I think there... I don't think there is a reflecting pond there. Not just a reflecting pond, but also, you know, a giant. Uh, an obelisk? Yeah. Mm, oh. I don't, there is I'm not. Surprised. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, then you go past that, then you've got the city garden sculpture park. And then beyond that is the civil courts building. So as you're looking straight through the arch, the, it, it basically frames this ziggurat with the caravim on top, this, artificial mountain yes as a portal or so, a an abode of the gods st. right there louis, in st louis the gateway city the gateway arch and the gateway city mm -hmm. yeah that's wild. so some very interesting things there the oh the other sculpture that was really interesting is that uh the one called door of return mm, yes i know that is so weird yeah it looks like a doorway with a a seed on top of it that is cracking open and the seed reminds me of one of the posters from the alien movie franchise yeah kind of where the the egg is cracking open mm -hmm. and uh -huh. you see the glow from the inside coming out that's kind of how it looks because it's black on the outside but the inside of this egg that's cracking open on top of this doorway is painted gold with a reflective paint so when the sun hits it it looks like it's glowing from the inside and it's facing 909 chestnut now there is an old myth that is in many cultures of a rising and dying God who comes from the sky. It is a rock, sometimes described as a black rock, but an unfollow sort of rock mm -hmm. that yeah. falls from the sky and cracks open and the God emerges from the stone. Mm. And if you connect that with the Kronos myth right. and Uranus, when Kronos castrated his father right uh lots of stones we'll put quote unquote stones fell from the sky Uranus, and seeded themselves on the earth that's how um 
Aphrodite was supposed to have been born. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, from the uh, sea foam. Right. Right. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. Well, so, Mithras. Mithras was one of the, the ones rock. that came out of a rock. And, and that's what why in the ancient world around the Mediterranean, meteorites were venerated because they were believed to be living stones that they called Batilia. Um, scholars now call them beetles because they became a representation of the deity without carving it into an anthropomorphic form. In other words, uh, when we went to Petra, there are carvings of just a like a cube or a block or a faceless you know shape, and it's because the Nabataean Arabs were like like Jews, anaconic. The religion was anaconic. You couldn't represent the god as a human. So that's why you don't have any ancient Jewish sculptures of Yahweh, because you're not supposed to do that. Right. But the whole concept of the beetle, which is spelled B-E-T-Y-L, and Betilia in Greek comes from the Hebrew words Betel or Bethel, meaning house, house or temple of the god or of El. Mm-hmm. El, who was Kronos, Saturn, etc. Right. We saw a lot of those in Petra. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, the local god for the Nabataeans, Dushara, was never created in anthropomorphic fashion. It was always this egg-shaped right. stone. So it's it's very interesting then, because I had not connected the idea of the beetle to this uh, sculpture in St. Louis, mm-hmm. the door of return. So interesting. Yeah. Isn't okay. It? Who's returning and when right. and why? Exactly. So you've got that gateway, and that's at a 90-degree angle to the gateway arch, because again, 909 Chestnut is a little off-centered to the right as you're looking through the arch at the Civil Courts building. Mm -hmm. But um, I I had already decided to use 909 Chestnut as a a setting for the novel I'm working on because it's sitting there vacant, this 44-story building with no tenants, and nobody's nobody's been in there since about 2014. And... uh, that's like, okay, well, that'd be a good place to put, you know, the headquarters of evil. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. But now so. even more so with the, you know, with, with the ziggurat next door. Well, if you take a look at the, the position on the map where all of this mm. exists, it's on the 39th parallel. 39th parallel, yeah. A lot of weirdness happens on the 39th parallel. Indianapolis is on and the 39th And 90 degrees longitude. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's about 39 north and 30, 90 degrees west. Interesting. Yep. So hmm. yeah, those are those are those are interesting how a lot of these like megaliths also, you know, connect. If you were to do Google Earth, like you said, mm-hmm. Eric, that they, they connect. It's almost like these grids, you know, right? The ley lines and, and things well, of that nature that connect. You know, yeah, I know that there are individuals who follow the idea of ley lines and they do so because of mystical beliefs. Right. Um, I believe that there are places upon the earth that historically have a lot of spiritual activity. Right. Why that is, I couldn't tell you. It may have something to do with the what is claimed to be ley lines, which are named after a gentleman whose last name is Ley. Yes. Um, L-E-Y, in case you've never heard of it before. Um, good listeners. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, if you also connect places like that to... The Serpent Mound, which in Ohio, which is on a, almost the same latitude, um, you can also draw lines between various um, installations like Stonehenge, and mm-hmm. you will find that a number of well-known temples or uh, ancient installations of stones, whether they're standing stones or 
or actual hinges will be along or very close to that same line. Why is that? I don't know. The one thing that Derek and I really have followed out, and L.A. Marzulli is a great guy to get on talking about that kind of stuff because he really digs into that. Yeah. Uh, Derek and I have been digging into the uh, the African Rift, which goes through uh, the Dead Sea and uh, the Sea of Galilee and up to Mount Hermon. It's this massive, ancient rift in the earth that has a ton of spiritual activity. And most of the Old Testament takes place along that rift. And a lot of the future battles will be very close to that rift. Yeah. New, New Testament stuff, too. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Valley of the Shadow of Death. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was my next um my next question to you, Derek, because I know that we talked a, a little bit about this during our first uh, table talk. You briefly uh, touched on your recent trip to Israel. You talked about the Valley of the Shadow of Death being an actual place, not just a figure of speech uh, that we read in the Bible. And you visited um, several megalithic sites as well. Um, and you believe you've, well, you, you talked, you've talked about it on several podcasts because I've heard you, but, um, about the actual location or site of Jesus's baptism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The, the, uh, consensus by most scholars is that Jesus was baptized near Jericho on the Jordan side of the river. In fact, uh, United Nations in 2015 designated that location as a UN or UNESCO World Heritage Site. And based on that, the Kingdom of Jordan is spending something like $300 million to really develop it into a tourist area. And when they do get it developed, when we're in Jordan, we're likely to go spend some time there. Right. We we like we like Jordan a lot. Yeah, yeah. people there are extremely friendly, and God bless them. They don't have much in the way of natural resources other than sand, right. uh, potash to some degree, cement, but... Other than that, it's really the biblical history because a lot of the Bible's history took place east of the Jordan River. So God bless them, but just be aware that that's not where Jesus was baptized. Um, we read in John chapter 1, because the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they mention that John was baptizing in the wilderness of Judea. And so we tend to think or assume that that refers to the territorial allotment, the tribal allotment given to Judah, which was in the south, you know, basically from Jerusalem and south. So, okay, he must have been out there somewhere near Qumran, you know, in, and okay. Uh, and that's why people will look in that area um, along the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. But John is the one who gives, the Gospel of John gives actual geographic clues. In the chapter, first chapter of the Gospel of John, he uh, tells, begins with the story of John the Baptist, which makes sense. And... Um, Beginning in verse 19, he describes the confrontation between John and uh, priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem who come and, you know, demand to know who he is and uh, why he's baptizing. And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's citing the prophet Isaiah. And again, they say wilderness. Okay, that must mean the desert somewhere east of Jerusalem. It's okay. Then in verse 28, John gives us a location. He said, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, everyone, for 2,000 years, 
Christians have been trying to find the location of Bethany across the Jordan because there is no town or ruin or anything named Bethany. The only Bethany anyone's ever heard of is on the Mount of Olives, and that's not across the Jordan, which means east of the Jordan River. Um, finally, around 1877, a, uh, an explorer working for the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, Lieutenant Claude Condor, he's with the military, but the PEF was using military guys to uh, explore and uh, report back to the, uh, the foreign office on uh, the, the, what they could expect to get their hands on after the Ottoman Empire collapsed, which finally happened in 1922. Or 1922. Uh, anyway, Condor, uh, in 1874, had written a paper. He thought maybe it was a site south of the Sea of Galilee near Beth Shan. Uh, but then in 1877, he wrote, now wait a minute, um, even though the early church theologian Origen had written that the oldest existing manuscripts of the Gospel of John in his day, so we're talking the early 3rd century A.D., said Bethania, Origen said, well, I can't find any, nobody knows, nobody's ever heard of a place called Bethania east of the Jordan River, so it must be wrong. Even though the best manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts say Bethania, that's got to be wrong. It's, I'm going to change it to Beth Abara, which means house of the crossing. And that's why King James Bibles say in John 128, these things took place in Beth Abara across the Jordan. Origen changed it. Jerome kept it when he translated the Bible into Latin. Condor in 1877 wrote, Bethania is probably an alternate spelling or transliteration from the Latin name Botania. Wow. Botania was the name of the Romans had given to the region north and east of the Sea of Galilee, ancient Bashan, the kingdom of Og of Bashan, Bashan across the Jordan. Well, that means it's north of the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River runs all the way down from just south of Mount Hermon in the north down to the Sea of Galilee through a valley that used to be a marsh until the 1950s when the Israelis drained it to get rid of malaria, um, the Hula marsh it's now a nature preserve and uh, farmland but uh, this would put john's ministry north of the sea of galilee not down near jerusalem first of all secondly bashan is essentially the golan heights and uh, it is well known as essentially a necropolis it is a, a giant necropolis because it is covered with dolmens which are megalithic funerary monuments that go back 6,000 years the oldest ones um, in fact the Israeli archaeologist who led the survey of the Golan uh, his name is Moshe Hartal wrote about eight years ago that we can no longer use the phrase dolmen field to describe clusters of these things because we don't know where one ends and the next one begins. For all intents and purposes, the Golan Heights is one giant dolmen field. They've identified more than 5,600 to this point. There are more of them clustered tighter together on the Golan Heights than anywhere on Earth. There, there are dolmens which, in the simplest form, look like a, a trilithon, two big vertical slabs to rock with a tabletop slab across the top. In fact, that's where the name comes from. Dolmen is a Britonic word. That's a Celtic language. That means table. Right. The guy who named the guys who named them a couple of, well, British Army soldiers back in the 19th century, they spotted it and said, oh, we've got these back in County Cork or wherever, uh, uh -huh. Kilkenny. Um, and so they called them Dolman and the name stuck. Hmm. But there, there, are, there are about 25,000 in all 
in Israel and Jordan, between Mount Hermon and the Dead Sea, and 5,600 on the Golan Heights alone, about a 1,000 of them around that valley through which the Jordan River runs between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee. So that's where John was baptizing, at Bethany across the Jordan, at Bashan across the Jordan. So John was in the ancient kingdom of Og, this land covered with these megalithic monuments to the dead. And we know that this is where Jesus was baptized because we see in verse 29 of John chapter 1, the verse after we read these things took place in Bethany, in Bashan across the Jordan, the next day, John writes, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me even though John was older. Yeah. Yeah. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. So Jesus was baptized in this region, north of Jordan. And again, John, the apostle is giving us timestamps. Cause again, he said the next day, after John was confronted, John the Baptist confronted by the scribes, the Pharisees and Levites, verse 35, the next day again, John, giving us a timestamp here, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother. And so then he goes gets Peter and said, we found the Messiah and brought him to Jesus. Then verse 43, the next day, again, the next day. So this is all happening within a span of a few days. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So the first three disciples called it from the city of Bethsaida, which is located about a mile and a half north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is significant because, again, we're talking about a time when you had to walk everywhere. Right. Andrew and Peter, according to the other Gospels, were partners in a fishing business with James and John on the Sea of Galilee. We know from John 1, verse 40, that Andrew was one of John the Baptist's disciples. The location the United Nations has designated as the official site of Jesus' baptism near Jericho, is 90 miles away from the north end of the Sea of Galilee. That would take you at least six days to walk. Right. Wow. What because it's not flat, easy terrain. Yeah. I mean, it's six days. And if you're making good time, walking about 15 miles a day. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that uh, even a young, healthy guy in that territory would be able to make that kind of time. Mm-hmm. So it's say, roughly a week. Well, given the Sabbath, it probably would take a week. It's not the next day. It's not the next day that he's going to suddenly pop up and say, you know, he's going to run all the way back to Bethsaida and say, hey, we found the, and now let's go all the way back here to Jericho. No, this was all happening within close walking distance of Bethsaida. And at the time, the Galilee was probably very close to uh, Bethsaida itself. So being a fisherman and living in that city would make perfect sense. Now, the Jordan River at that point, again, I mentioned the Bethsaida is about a mile and a half north of the Sea of Galilee as it is today. But we know that the level of the Sea of Galilee has been higher in the past. The shoreline has changed. And in that area, um, the Jordan River is kind of leveled out into a kind of a, a valley 
And it, it, the, the Jordan River it, here in American standards, we call it a creek. In some places, yes. Yeah. Um, right. But you can see if the level, the water level was higher, as it may have been back in the day before they drained the Hula Marsh and Lake Hula, mm-hmm. um, it might have extended all the way up to that area where oh, it's a very so. close, close walk. Also, it's, as Derek mentioned, very earthquake prone region. Right. Again, it's right along this rift, which has a lot of activity geologically. So it makes sense that the shoreline would shift back and forth, be higher sometimes, and even reshape the lake itself. Mm-hmm. What I love about Kinneret, and that's the other name, the actual name for what we call the Galilee, is that it's harp-shaped, which is why it's called the Kinneret. Yeah. And I love the fact that Jesus sort of plays on the strings of the Kinneret mm-hmm. harp mm-hmm. when he walks on the water and says, you know, this is pretty easy to me. No harder than David plucking a string on his harp. Mm-hmm. I can control the water. I control That's so you, cool. exactly. ancient enemy. That's so cool. That's so there, so there cool. is a there is a site very close to um, Bethsaida. It's about half a mile. That looks very much like the megalithic site, about ten miles east of there, called Gilgal Rephaim, which mm-hmm. means Wheel of the Giants. We don't know what it was called in ancient times. It's not mentioned in the Bible, no. but uh, Gilgal Rephaim is about five hundred foot diameter series of concentric rings made of big chunks of basalt. Uh, they estimate about 42,000 tons of stone. I actually know it's more than that, 60, yeah. about 60,000 tons yeah, by most recent estimate. Yeah. The so, but just, as, to give you an idea for comparison, they estimate the weight of the stones at Stonehenge at about 25,000 tons. So this is more than twice that at Gilgal Rephaim. And the best recent, most recent estimate of the age of Gilgal Rephaim puts the construction at around 3750 BC. So we're talking these. Well, we don't know. Um, There was clearly an organized culture and civilization on the Golan Heights almost 6,000 years ago Mm. because it it's well-designed when you see some of the walls that haven't been as damaged over the centuries by earthquakes and by, you know, Bedouins coming and repurposing the rocks to make sheep enclosures or whatever, it's very well engineered mm-hmm. right? and the alignment is really precise. There's a, uh, an opening above the entry into the central core of Gilgal Rephaim that allows the sun, the, the rising sun on the summer solstice to shine through and land on a threshold stone that you have to cross to get into the center of the, uh, uh, the core there at Gilgal Rephaim. But who those people were, we don't know, because writing wasn't invented yet, um, at least as far as we know. Writing really emerges around 3000 BC. The idea of threshold stones um, and threshing floors, these are portals between our reality and the spiritual reality, the other side, uh, the other world, the underworld, whatever you want to call it. Um, That is an important idea with regards to Gilgal Raphaim, um, there was a, a, a practice in antiquity. In fact, it's sort of echoed today um, in, in that there are some Catholics who will bury Joseph upside down in their garden mm-hmm. by their house. Well, the gods, images of the gods would be buried underneath the threshold so that you would um, purposely interact with the god. It was a representation of passing from our world into his because he controlled that gateway that was the gate of the god that you were walking through Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was reversed when the lord 
sent uh, the angel of death through Egypt, and the blood was put to counteract that that whole idea of what what the fallen realm had said was true about thresholds. Um, so the idea of the the sun hitting that threshold stone, it's as if the 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 sun is activating mm-hmm. a portal. Yeah, that's incredible. So and, and, what was buried underneath that threshold? Right. Well, that's a good question. They've, they've uh-huh. never dug it out, and uh, we we did have a chance to spend a day with Dr. Michael Freakman, who's done the most recent excavations there, and. Um, we had asked him about what was buried underneath the central core. He said, well, this is built on bedrock. This is bedrock down here. So um, he doesn't think there's anything, but I don't know that they've ever lifted the threshold he stone. To see that. If there could have been a cavity created. There could have been, there could have been. And he does admit that it was really difficult to get, uh, you know, students to help him on these digs because they have to move really big rocks and they didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> he went through his volunteers very quickly. It's out in the middle of nowhere, really close to Syria. There are mines that you have to sometimes be aware of that yeah. the pigs will dig up mines in the off the roads and yeah. because pigs aren't wheel, wild pigs aren't heavy enough to set the mines off they're for tanks mm-hmm. they wow. dig them up and then toss them into the road <laughs> so you have to watch out for that and they, there are jackals out there roaming around yeah and, yeah you know so a lot of people don't want to go out there we yeah. had a fall out there oh my god <laughs> the holy spirit fell down on that group wow and formed us day one into a family it, it was amazing we went in march because the last time we were in israel back in 2019 we went in uh, may, in may. and uh, it was really hot <sighs> we, we were talking several days above 110 fahrenheit we went uh just after a, a, a period of rain and there are no paved roads that get to gilgal Rephaim. So. We had uh, taken a different route that led us to the site, mostly on paved roads, really badly potholed and patched. And um, we got to the site and we were transferred from, we actually traveled to the site on those open-sided carriers. It's like they had these two safari type people carriers, (laughs) kind of thing you go through the open sides where you can pet the giraffes or whatever. (laughs) And they were going to take us across this, this, final little stretch to get to the site itself. And you have to cross a little stream called the Daliot to get there. And we thought, okay, this is going to be bad because we'd been there a few days earlier with our, um, our friend, Aaron Lipkin, who owns the tour company that we use for our tours of Israel. Aaron barely got his Toyota land cruiser through there, you know, and he left some pretty big ruts with the land mm-hmm. cruiser. We thought, okay, these safari carriers, they're not going to, and sure enough, the first one, we were in the second one. We see the first one get stuck. And we're thinking, oh, no, we got 110 people, 115 people who paid all this money to cross the ocean to come here. And and the very first day, we're going to this site that we've been talking about. And everybody's excited to see. And now it's stuck on them. And they're going to hate us. This is awful. And no, people jumped out. We, we were calling, tell the driver to back up. We'll go to the serpent mound here. You know, it's on the <laughs> other side of the road. No, no, we can make it. We can make it. People jump out. It's like, look, the stream, it's little. There are stones. We can cross. And so... The young men were helping the older folks across, oh. men helping women across, and everybody just thought, this is a great adventure. This is Absolutely. awesome. And you know, so we had people in their 70s who were mm-hmm. climbing up on the rocks and getting up on top of it. It's like, look, you can see Mount Hermon in the distance mm-hmm. and going into the central core. So it was a great adventure. Yeah. And yet it allowed us to say, now you can see that this is in the middle of no place. 
Right. Um, it was at the time it was built, there were a number of settlements. This is back during the Copper Age. So this predates the Bronze Age. Uh, for whatever reason, 6,000 years ago, a civilization here found it important enough to build this and set it up so you got the summer solstice shining in on that threshold stone. But the two gates in the outer ring that allow you to enter into the, uh, the, the, the complex are aligned so that when you look from the central core outward, they frame on the horizon a volcano. Now, they're extinct today, but you've got a mountain to the northeast called Tel Saki, one to the, or Tel Ferris to the uh, southwest, southeast. It's Tel Saki. Um, and, you know, Dr. Freakman's like, well, look, there's no writing, so we can't be sure. But his theory is that this relates to the same reason that in Hebrew, the word Eretz can mean earth, but also means the netherworld. But even more specifically, in ancient Sumerian, the word for mountain, Kur, K-U-R, is the same exact word as the word for netherworld. Um. So it's sort of a, a connection between the heavenly realm and the underworld realm. And that relates to our research, especially in the second coming of Saturn and in veneration, where mm -hmm. we talk about the importance of the, uh, the cult of the dead and the worship of the Rephaim, mm -hmm. the spirits of the Nephilim, in and around ancient Israel. And apparently, if Dr. Freakman is right, and this site is one of those devoted to the cult of the dead, we can show that this predates I mean, you know, this thing was old when Abraham walked the earth. This thing was built 2,000 years before Abraham. So uh, it, it, it is a very ancient practice. And for whatever reason, that area south of Mount Hermon, the region of Bashan, which is a name that means place of the serpent. Uh, in fact, the ancient Akkadians named their seven-headed chaos dragon, their version of Leviathan, was Bashmu, Bashan. Mm -hmm. Oh, incredible. So, yeah, right in the middle of Bashan. And then, of course, a quarter of a mile north of there, we've got that uh, serpent-shaped ridge. Very big. It makes the serpent mound in Ohio look like a baby. Oh, yeah. Three times longer, five times higher, and uh, 200 feet wide, covered with 140 megalithic tombs. It's Plus amazing. some buildings. Yeah, yeah, because there were people who lived back there. Apparently, the priestly family that took care of the site, or we like would speculate. A, the equivalent of a bunch of monks. Yeah, yeah. Because the kitchen area was pretty sizable. Yeah. So they were cooking for more than one. And when it was abandoned at the end of the, the Copper Age, beginning of the Bronze Age, they they buried the site. Mm -hmm. They buried the houses. They, they pushed the roof in, set it on fire. They broke all of their utensils, which were made because they didn't have pottery. They were made of basalt. So you had like a big grinding stone uh, weighing about 110, 120 pounds of basalt. They literally broke it and left it there, and then pushed in the ceiling, set it on fire, buried it, and left. Why did they do that? Right. We don't know. We don't know. But similar things have been recorded all over the ancient Near East, like, uh, well, uh, Gobekli Tepe was ritually buried. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Gilgal Raphaim, Raphaim is not on most tours lists. Mm -hmm. Right. Ours is one of the few tours that go there. So, you know, if you want to see Gilgal Raphaim, you can go with us next March mm -hmm. in 2024 and then again in March of 2025. Right. So next spring, we're going with Timothy Alberino. Mm -hmm. And in 2025, we're going with Doug Van Dorn again and Dr. Judd Burton. The Iron and Myth Tour. The Iron and Myth Tour. But we tell you all of that about Gilgal Raphaim to bring it back to the Jordan River because 10 right. miles west of Gilgal Raphaim is a site that's 
very similar to Gilgal Rephaim. Same it's, design. Yeah. Concentric rings of stone around a central core. The one gate in there, although it's harder to see because this one's not in as good a shape as Gilgal Rephaim, but the one gate opens on a, uh, a hill to the north of there. So again, looking out from the central core, you see the gate and then you see it framing this, this mountain on the skyline. It's on the east bank of the Jordan River, about two miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's only half a mile from the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. That's Saida. And the bank of the Jordan River slopes down about 100 feet right there, down to the river. And we think that that is the area. Where, I mean, given that Andrew and Peter and Philip were right in that vicinity, we think that's where Jesus was baptized. Oh, I think so, too. And, and I think that there are so many cool things about it. Um, for one thing, it actually could be a place to baptize someone because it really looks like a small river there. Yeah. It's got enough water that you could dunk somebody. Mm -hmm. wow. um, and, and a lot of the Jordan doesn't look like that. And it's a beautiful setting. But if Jesus had been, if he really was baptized there, then it was a polemic against, it was a, it's a deliberate act, a poke in the eye to the fallen realm, a place where these ancient deities had been revered and the Lord himself came down and said, I'm here i am here to do battle with you fallen angels and with your kids that are roaming the earth right now and your days are numbered i love that so much because mike heiser himself taught that baptism mm -hmm. itself is a picture of going into the underworld and and poking the eye of these fallen entities and saying we've got another one Resurrection yes. exists for the children of the Almighty, not for your fallen kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all your buddies, your your kids are doomed. They will not rise. You've promised them new bodies, but they are dead. They will not rise. Mm. It's all about resurrection. Yeah, whose kids are resurrected? And, and wow. even even more to that point, um, we we didn't even think about this until after we'd gotten back from Israel. And then uh, I think at the, the, the very same week, we had the same thought as uh, Doug Van Dorn, who was with us on this, this tour. He's preaching through the gospel of Luke. Uh, he, he will take a book and go through it verse by verse exegetically. Um, he was preaching on Luke chapter nine. And uh, this is just after Jesus uh, confronted the Gerasene demoniac, and then he uh, heals uh, the daughter of, uh, of Jairus, the mm -hmm. uh, leader in, in the synagogue. He sends out the 12 apostles into Galilee, um, and then he feeds the 5,000. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. This is in uh, Luke 9, beginning at verse 10. And he took them and withdrew apart, apart, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away to go into the... Well, anyway, you know the story, the feeding yes. of the 5,000, 5,000 men plus their families. We think, based on the topography of the ground right there, next to this site on the hillside, on the top of the bank, leading down to the Jordan River, which creates a natural theater for people to sit and hear somebody speak, perhaps on the mm -hmm. other side of the river, that this is where Jesus fed the 5,000. 
because uh, according to the Synoptic Gospels, after they were done, he sent the disciples ahead of him in a boat, which means they were on the other side of the river. They crossed the river. They decided to go out and fish. And then Jesus had to walk across the water to, you know, basically come to them and, and save them from the storm, which again mm -hmm. is another condemnation of the storm god, Baal, who Jesus identified in Matthew 12, beginning at verse 22 as Satan, but also chaos. Yes. Mm. And feeding the 5,000 5, was a reversal of the demands of the fallen realm for the pagans. You have to feed us. Yes. Every month there was a ritual mm -hmm. that the pagans performed called kispum. This is an ancient Amorite ritual. It's first attested like 24th century BC or something. Um, they would summon their ancestors by name in a necromancy ritual. Right. And then they would offer them bread and a drink of some sort, water usually, but could be wine or beer or whatever. Uh, this was required because if they didn't do this, it was believed the ancestors would cease to exist in the afterlife. They had to keep their name in remembrance. This is why Absalom in 2 Samuel 18 erected a pillar to himself in the uh, Valley of the Kings, for he had no son to keep his name in remembrance. It was a pagan thing. Uh, this, this is why in a verse from Isaiah 26 that Sharon made reference to, they are dead, they will not live. They are Rephraim, they will not arise. That verse begins with saying, O Lord, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we keep in mm -hmm. remembrance. That's the reason. It's not, oh, your reputation is much greater than theirs. No, it was a belief by the pagans that if you forgot the names of your ancestors, they would, dis they would just disappear. They would cease to exist. And this ritual of feeding the dead ancestors was such a... For thousands of years, well, it continues to this day, actually, in various forms. You ever go into a, a shop and see a little, you know, table of, of offerings to the ancestors sitting over in the corner? Mm -hmm. It's a continuation of this thing that began with the spirits of the Rephaim, demons, convincing people, hey, you need to feed us. You need to give us drink in order to keep us alive in the afterlife. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus reversed it here. In by the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's another feeding of the 4,000. But this account, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle other than the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. So it's important. And it's a miracle that's similar to Psalm 23 in that, yes. you know, when he leads yes. us into the valley of the shadow of death, he prepares a table, a dolmen, before yeah. us in the presence of our enemies. So this is in the valley of the shadow of death, this very place. And he makes a dolmen-like table for us and he anoints our head with oil which means that he's bringing us into the the family we are becoming royal members of the assembly and he prepares a, a cup and it it just you know it's never ending my cup runs over this is the same idea of feeding the five thousand. there was food left at the end and mm -hmm. of course there was no end to the, the gospel, there's no end to the Lord's, this is my body, this is my blood. There's no end to that. Any number of people can be accepted into that divine assembly. All you need to say is yes to Jesus. That's it. Amen. And Matthew saw the base of Jesus' operations. When, when John the Baptist was arrested, this is Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Uh, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And now he quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, which is that messianic prophecy that includes, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. 
verse 15 of Matthew 4, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, that's the Roman road, the Via Maris, that ran from Alexandria, Egypt, to Damascus and beyond. It went right up the Jordan Valley through that valley north of the Sea of Galilee up to the site of the ancient city of Hatzor. It's about halfway between uh, the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon. And then it cuts off to the northeast towards Damascus. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, again, east of the Jordan River, Galilee of the Gentiles. Hmm. So we're talking about this land east and of this Jordan, north of the sea, ancient Bashan, in other words. Yes. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Yeah. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew saw Jesus moving to Capernaum as fulfillment of this and bringing a light to the region and shadow of death. That valley through which the Jordan River runs between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee, that valley surrounded by a thousand of these dolmens. And that's why we went and visited the uh, what archaeologists believe was the center of the culture that built those dolmens 4,000 years ago or more. Uh, northeast corner of that valley, uh, near a kibbutz called Shamir, there's a, a dolmen field there that's got about 400 dolmens in it, and the center of that field is one with a capstone. That's that tabletop stone right. that they estimate at 50 tons. Crazy. Now, that's, that's like know. Two, How do you lift that? two fully loaded 18-wheelers on an American highway that's... would not quite weigh 50 tons. And yet somehow, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, they managed to lever this thing up into place. And um, for what? Why? Right. I mean, just How? because it's cool. No, I mean, there, there's so much work that had to be involved that was involved not just in those dolmens, but also in that uh, site near the Sea of Galilee, Kerbet Beteha, mm -hmm. uh, Gilgal Rephaim. There's another one further north and east of uh of that that location on the Golan Heights called Site 133. Nobody knows it's there except the archaeologist. Um, We're going to try to go there. Aaron uh, claims he can get us in, even though it's actually a you know a training a, site for the IDF. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so boy. He's clear with the IDF. <laughs> oh boy. I know. And there's there's supposedly a fourth site that's similar to that that doesn't even have a name, but it's in the middle of a minefield, so you can't even oh get my to it. Goodness. But uh, we'll send a drone in. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll find it. Pig. We'll send a drone. We'll send a we, that's right. We'll send pigs. Right. Pigs with uh, webcams. <laughs> but there's so much work involved in planning those out and the work involved in lifting and carrying those stones. They, they estimated it was like 40,000 work days. <coughs> that right? Yeah, about 40,000 work days to um, build Gilgal Rephaim, which means if you had a thousand guys, it would take, you know, working every day of the week, it would take about a year and a half. But you've got those thousand guys, they've got families, you have to defend right. your territory, you have to prepare food, you have to bring water in because there was no local water in some of these places. Mm -hmm. How do you do all that? Right. And who is the strong man right. who sure. gets it all organized? And, sure. and again, the question is why? Why was it so important? Mm. You only did it because you believed it was really, re it's more important to do this than have this guy out tending the flocks or plowing the field. And this is why we love archaeology and going over to Israel and mm -hmm. seeing the stuff actually on the ground because the, 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 the Bible itself, Old and New Testaments, they come to life yes. and it starts to make sense. 
Yeah. And as you said earlier, connecting dots, making that picture, mm-hmm. I see the world as a whole lot of connect the doc, dots pictures. Yes. And sometimes you'll start to see a face or a scene emerge in one area and another one over here, and you realize they're connected. Yes. So all of these various pieces that you have to individually connect the dots to that one piece, they're interconnected. And then beyond that, they're interconnected. It's an endless series of interconnected realities and truths that the Lord himself can see all at the same time, and he works it all together for good. I love how you both brought it full circle, uh, because for for the Christian who goes on uh, to church on a weekly basis and reads their Bible and, you know, does their devotional uh, and might listen to some of the topics that we discuss, they might, you may, they might call us sensationalists. They might call us, you know, they, they might, they might say that why, why go into so much of this, you know, Greek mythology, talk about megaliths, talk about all of these things. That, and what does it really matter where Jesus was baptized? Well, what, what does it matter the location? As long as, you know, I'm a good Christian. I read my Bible. I go to church and I pay my dues. I pay my tithes. I give offerings. I support missions. Why is it so important for us to even know these things? I mean, is it really necessary? They're not salvation issues. No. So correct. We, we, we want to be clear about that. You don't need to believe as we do where Jesus was baptized in order to be saved. But the fact that Jesus paid attention to this, the fact that he chose this specific location in the north of the Sea of Galilee, rather than Jerusalem, I mean, you know, he was clearly didn't have much regard for the religious hierarchy of his day. Why didn't he go just to Jerusalem right off the bat? instead of going to the north of the Sea of Galilee, why did he lead his disciples very specifically to Caesarea Philippi? Most of us don't have enough sense of the geography of Israel to think anything. Okay, went to Caesarea Philippi, big deal. Well, you know, in today's world, we're used to the amount of travel time it takes when we get in the car and drive someplace. 90 miles, okay, that's a road trip to go to the outlet mall. Big whoop. Back in the day, that was a week journey on foot. You had to pack food for it. You had to pack supplies, extra clothing, and so on. This was not where you just, you know, throw a bottle of water in the car and go. When he went to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the north end of this valley, it's at the base of Mount Hermon, it was a specific trip to that location. Um, When you read the sequence of events in the Gospels, you see he had just returned from Lebanon. He was in the region of Sidon and Tyre, where he healed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. And the road from Tyre leading back to that valley goes right past the city of Dan and Caesarea Philippi. Jesus could have said, hey, we're in the neighborhood. Let's go over here because I got something I want to show you. No, he went back to the Sea of Galilee, fed the 5,000, cast the demons out of the Gerasene demoniac Mm -hmm. and did some other stuff. And then he walked back. Well, that's a 30-mile walk Mm. through some rough territory, through an area that back in the day was a swamp. So you had to, you know, stick to the high, high ground, which meant mm-hmm. you're going up and down hills. It's a two, possibly three day walk. It was very specific. He took them there for a point. And Caesarea Philippi was well known from ancient times as a pagan cult center. Right. The base of Mount Hermon, 
big cave right there that in the, in the first century AD, the Jewish author uh, historian Josephus wrote that no one had ever been able to lower a plumb line long enough to reach bottom. In other words, they believed it was a bottomless cave, literally the entrance to the netherworld. Mm. You had a temple to Jupiter there. You had a temple to the emperor, Caesar mm. Augustus. You had a temple to Nemesis. You had a temple to Asclepius. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so, and a temple to uh, Pan. Mm -hmm. Hence the name of that cave, the Grotto of Pan. This would have been known to Jesus' Jewish followers, his disciples, like, uh, teacher, why are you bringing us here? This is where all the pagans go to worship. Mm -hmm. And that's where Jesus said, okay, who do you say the Son of Man is? Or who do people say the Son of Man is? And yeah. they gave him various answers. And then he asked them, who do you say yeah. that I am? Clearly connecting himself to this character called the Son of Man. And Peter answered, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praised him. And said, this wasn't revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter had divine revelation yes. mm -hmm. that confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. And it was right there that he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. On this rock, he said, I, I say, you are Peter, you are Petros. And on this Petra, this rock, mm -hmm. standing at the base of a 9,200 foot mountain, which was known in the ancient world, essentially as the Canaanite Mount Olympus. It's where their gods met. Hmm. On this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation, my assembly, and the gates of hell, hmm. which everyone knows is this really big cave right over here, <laughs> from which the Jordan River emerges, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He took them there specifically to do that. So, again, he could have made that declaration at the mm -hmm. temple. You know, yes. why not do it in his father's house? Yeah. Why not do it in Nazareth or Capernaum? Why did he take it? It, it matters to us, or at least it should matter to us, because it mattered to Jesus. That's he right. was baptized at a specific place, Batania, Bashan, across the Jordan, this land known as the literal entrance to the netherworld. He declared his divinity at the base of Mount Hermon, again, right in front of the literal entrance to the netherworld. Yeah. And then, six days later, he took Peter, James, and John up Mount Hermon, because it's the only very high mountain anywhere near Caesarea Philippi. And there he was transfigured. Yes. He declared his divinity into the spirit realm, the unseen realm there on that mountain. Why there instead of at Zion? Why, why not do it there in the temple? Mm. Because he was making a point. Right. He was making a point to the pagans, to his Jewish followers, clearly, but also to the unseen realm. That's yes, I am the son of man. I am the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah, mm -hmm. what are you going to do about it? In, in the book of, I love all that, honey. In the book of Enoch, the, one of the stories, and I believe a lot of Enoch can be relied upon. Um, it is not in the, our canon, I assume for a reason, but I mm -hmm. think to get context, it's an important book to read. Mike Heiser thought that too. Mm -hmm. which is why he wrote the two-volume um, commentary on Enoch. Mm -hmm. And Enoch, the watchers, who are these angels who came down and, and bore children with human women, these watchers are told by Enoch that a great flood is coming and will wipe out humanity and all of these hybrid children. Mm -hmm. And they begin to weep. And they say, no, please, please, can you go to Yahweh mm -hmm. and plead for us? plead for our children and uh, ask him if he'll come down and talk to us. Well, Enoch does this. And when he comes back, he says, 
you should have prayed for mankind's children, mm. which in a way implies if they had, there might have been a different outcome, but they didn't. And then Enoch says, he is not coming down here. Here is what he told me to tell you. And then he goes on to give the rest of the, the pronouncement. The fact that Yahweh did not come down then is echoed when Jesus does come down, mm. not only in human form to earth and talk to them over and over and over again in the valley of the shadow of death, but then after he is crucified and gives up his spirit, he goes down to Tartarus. Yeah. And he says, you wanted to talk to me? Well, here I am. <laughs> My message is, you're not getting out and your kids are still dead. But I am getting out on dawn of the third day. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Phenomenal. <laughs> but that's why this, we love doing this. This is the reason. Life. Exactly. This is it. This is it. No, this you don't have to know all this stuff to be saved. You, you don't. The thief on the cross is proof. Yeah. yeah. He just believed and that was it. That's all you need to do. Yeah. But if you want to get excited about the Bible and you want your kids to get, get excited about the Bible, your grandkids, then dig into this. As you read right. through the Bible, which is where Di Derek and I started on this, we we're reading out loud in Gilbert House Fellowship and coming across places and we go, wait, hold on, what, wait, was that always in there? And then we ask, why there? Why do that there? Yeah. What was the reason for all this? And so we started asking questions. The yeah. Lord doesn't mind yeah. questions. He encourages them. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I love how you said to make it exciting for uh, our kids and our grandkids and, and really the youth of today yes. who are in search of something and they don't know what this something is until they encounter Jesus, our Messiah, right? right. And 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 they're they're dabbling into all of these uh, new age uh, topics and 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 all of these you know spiritual things that um you know are are not what god intends for their lives and and yet if we can steer them in the direction of the fact that the bible is so alive the bible is so beautiful and interesting and thrilling and and, it, and if we have this type of knowledge and so much more, because I mean, I think that we've only scratched the surface. Can we? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Honest. Because we are living in Bible times. Yeah, exactly. People say, "Gosh, I wish I lived during biblical times." Oh, well, you are. You are. Because it's a continuing story. Yes. Yes. And you're it a character is. in this continuing story. Which side do you want to be on? Oh, so true, Sharon. So true. We're walking in it. <laughs> this book has not closed its its no, it you know not. chapters and said that this is put it on the shelf this is old stuff this is we read stories of what happened back then these stories are being written in our own lives i agree completely with that completely wow i we could go on and on about your trip to israel we've been to israel three times uh, the last time we went to Israel, we actually visited Jordan too. We visited Petra, mm -hmm. which was super interesting. Unfortunately, we didn't have too much time there, but I wish we would have spent a lot more time there. Um, but it was you, you need at least one day for sure. Yeah. 
start the day when you've already been rested because there's a lot of walking. And if you really want to go to the upper levels, a lot of climbing. Yeah. Yeah. And best to go at a time of year when it's not going to be 110 degrees. Yeah. That is you know, true. In the way a cloud cover there or yeah. trees. The one sad thing shade. is Petra is getting more and more commercial. You have a lot of uh, yeah. families, you know, husbands and, and kids that are all trying yeah. to make a living. I understand that. Yeah. But it does make it a little difficult. It's almost like having to go through a phalanx, you know, yeah. to, to, to get through. <laughs> Run the gauntlet. The gauntlet. That's yeah. the word I wanted to try to get to the yeah. end. Yeah. I wanted to touch base on, on something uh, kind of off topic, but not maybe I guess I should word it that way. Um, because again, it's all part of these um, different uh, topics that we've been discussing and, and we should know, right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe we talked about this before, but I believe you both um, contributed to Dr. Tom Horn's book, uh, the milieu mm -hmm. Um I'm not, am I pronouncing that correct? Milieu, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, the subtitle of that is Welcome to the Transhuman Resistance. Mm. And uh, I wanted to ask your thoughts on AI, transhumanism, human enhancements. I, I've got Ellie Marzulli. I had Ellie Marzulli back, back maybe a couple of months ago. And I'm going to have him again joining me on Table Talk soon. And we, um, I, I know I want to get into the topic of UFOs. We didn't get a chance to do that. We talked mostly about his, um, his testimony, which was really fascinating. But, uh, you know, the whole UFO phenomenon and, and aliens and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to get, just kind of like pick your brain a little bit, um, especially Sharon here on the whole AI topic, transhumanism, human enhancements. UFOs. I know that we can go on for another what two hours, maybe, um, but maybe in a which this might turn into a two you, two part session. <laughs> I promise you, we'll come back on again. We'll just yes, talk the whole time about sure. transhumanism. But basically, this is just a repeat yeah. of the pre-flood experiment where the watchers came down, and it wasn't just that they saw women and they said, "Hey, hubba hubba, let's go get them." <laughs> it was the idea of creating their own progeny which the lord had said you cannot do in heaven they they weren't designed to do that that wasn't their their job he gave yeah. that to adam because the earth is adam's he was designed to be the king the ruler representing the almighty god on the throne in jerusalem what we now call jerusalem but i think it's always been there and there are a lot of scholars including carl gallops who agree with that that it's the center it's where eden is mm -hmm. well these watchers came down and not only did they want to break that prohibition, have their own children, I think they were building an army. Mm. I think they were building an army to take down the Lord's throne. That's what transhumanism is all about. It's a return to that. And we've been doing this since the late 19th century with the beginning of eugenics, the idea of perfecting mankind. Adolf Hitler picked up on that yeah. and he wanted to create the perfect Aryan race. Well, now we see transhumanism wanting per to perfect the postmodern man to, to make homo sapiens sapiens something even better that yeah. we can now be homo silica. We can combine with, with cyber in some way that makes us stronger and will live longer and we'll be able to, to function with great strength. We'll be superheroes like X-Men. Mm. Well, that's all a lie. 
the fact is we're heading into a new world order where the Great Pyramid reforms with the gods at the top and the human beings at the very bottom. But we will be convinced, those who buy into this lie, that you too can upgrade and live at the top. Mm. You just have to continue working. And when you qualify, you'll get there. It will be some sort of a carrot stick method. Mm. The stick is if you don't do it, then you can't buy or sell. Yes. You're already seeing that, the mm. digital currency that's coming in. Some people are being debanked because yeah. their political views are not in line with the new world order. Right. So some well-known individuals are being debanked. You can't, you can't, if you can't open a bank account, you cannot have access to the digital buying and selling. And if you can't do that, then you're, you're, you're not a person anymore. You don't exist. Think yeah. about that. You wow. won't exist in the new world order. That's where we're heading. And the Bible has already told us the Bible predicted transhumanism thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening now. The Bible isn't done. The story isn't finished. Yes. The Lord is not yet on the throne. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is taking the place of Adam. He is the new Adam. He is the one who will take that throne that Adam, he just gave away like a bowl of porridge, yeah. gave it away to the enemy. Well, yeah. it won't belong to Satan for long. Right. Because Jesus is coming back. Yeah. I keep thinking of Ecclesiastes 1 9, right? What what has been is what will be. Yes. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There is exactly there is nothing new under the sun. We're going to see a repeat of the old pre-flood lie. And praise the Lord, he has told us in advance what to expect. Yeah. I love that. It was Mike uh, Lake yesterday who said a very, I think it was Mike Lake, who said a very profound thing that I've heard others say, but each time I hear it, it really hits me like it's fresh. We already have transhumanism. Hmm. It's called becoming a Christian. Hmm. You get a brand new operating system. The Holy Spirit comes in and starts replacing old files. Wow. That is, we're becoming we're becoming that the very individual that we were supposed to be. We're returning to our position as God imagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We gave that up. And ultimately we will be raised into incorruptible bodies. Yes. Why, why would I trade that for something made of, uh, a bowl of porridge? Yes. Silicon and, uh, titanium. No. Yeah. The fake stuff. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. fake stuff. Yeah. The fake stuff is so alluring though. It's the same pagan, you know, allure that's been there all along. Hey, free sex. You know, do yeah. what you want to. You can be a boy one day, yeah. a girl the next day. You can be a cat. You can be a dog, whatever. Right. You know, it, it's up to you. Truth yeah. is relative is what we're being told. I'm sorry. No, that truth is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, it wouldn't be truth. That's right. If it we're not. That's right. I, I recently visited um, the Billy Graham Library up here in North Carolina. I've been there a couple of times. Uh, it's so close to our house. So we've visited a, a few times. And there was in one of the rooms, I don't know if you've ever been there before. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's really neat. Um, but one of, one of the rooms, they were playing um, a video and it caught my attention. It was actually an interview with the reverend. And he was stating um, about the return of Christ, that it was very soon, the return of Jesus. And he was asked why he thought this. And his response was that 
never in our history were so many events converging at the same time. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was an older interview. This was quite a number of years ago. Uh, Reverend Graham was was a lot younger in the video. Um, but if we fast forward to the present time, I think we're witnessing now much more, uh, many more events, I think, than say maybe 20 years ago. I mean, it's we're, daily. It, it's we a daily. It, it's it's it, like fast it really forward. Is. Because Derek does five and 10, he and I spend the mornings every day going through the news and every day there's something else. Right. That's big. Yeah. That is big. And it shows that the enemy is working very, very hard right. to get everything, to build every, every level of this massive new world order ziggurat so that it's all in place because the enemy realizes that the time is now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the rise of the whole you know, banking uh, chaos, uh, the pandemic that we just uh, experienced, uh, moral issues, you know, the decline of moral issues like never before. I mean, yeah. political and unrest. It, I mean, you go through it every every time you oh, give the sign and then. We do. And and I will tell you this, I'm I'm not one of those people who, you know, sees visions and, and see is, that the Lord gives prophetic utterances to I simply see the news and I, I can see the dots connecting as you do. There will be another pandemic. The one that we just went through was a rehearsal. I believe that. There will be another one and it will be far, far worse. Yeah. So I, I encourage people accept Jesus today because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But there is a very, very, very bad future coming. And it's just a few miles down the road as far as time is concerned. But also, if you have the wherewithal to do it, prepare your home with books that are printed because the digital age may end. Mm. Prepare, at least for a while, prepare your home with, with food that you can offer to people who come by and they need it. Be ready to share the gospel as you share material needs. Mm. This isn't just to keep ourselves alive. Yeah. This is to keep the word of God alive so that when people do knock on your door and they may knock on your door with a gun, mm. be ready to show them love. Mm. Mm. Wow. Because we're not here to live forever. Right. We're here to lift up Christ and tell that he yeah. will help you live forever. Yeah. Wow. Well, we yeah, nothing to add to that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the truth because dangerous times are here and are. much more dangerous times are ahead. Everybody I talk to says there's this quickening in their spirit that, oh, that yes. the Lord is saying, get ready. It's coming. Get ready. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. You guys, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for speaking such wisdom. And uh, and like I said, I, I've been following you for uh, both of you for quite some time. And I, I just can glean so much uh, from your knowledge and, uh, and, and not just that. I think that through it all, it, it brings hope. Like you just finished uh, saying, uh, Sharon, you, you know, you, the, the hope is found in Jesus. Oh, and, and yeah, it's great that we know all of this. It's great that, you know, we're, we're gaining more knowledge each and every day. And I think again, going back to that connecting of the dots, that's exactly what Jesus wants. So he wants to reveal himself even more so to each and every one of us. And mm -hmm. the most important thing is to, you know, bring others to Christ and, to bring the salvation news 
And uh, I would love for you guys to close us out in prayer. But before we do, um, if you would let us uh, know, the listeners out there, how to find you, uh, how to support your work. I think it's an important listen. For those of you that are uh, routine listeners of Table Talk and have been following this program for quite some time, support their ministry. Um, you know, they've got a lot to share. And and I'm, I, I am a believer of sowing seed where uh, there is fertile ground. And I believe you guys have fertile ground. I really do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the, uh, for allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you into these topics because they're needed for this day and age. Um, mm-hmm. So where can, where can they find you and support your work? The easiest way is at our website, gilberthouse.org. And uh, we encourage people when you're there, look for the link that says app or just go to gilberthouse.org slash app because we've got a YouTube channel. We've got other social media outlets, but we never know when those might be might be pulled. Yeah. They've, they've already hit us with a couple of strikes on our YouTube channel over the past mm. year um, because of things that were said years ago. Mm. Go back into the archives and say, okay, three years ago, you said this thing that we now decided violates community standards. So we're mm. going to hit you with a strike. Oh, but okay. that's their playground. It's, but- yeah, it's a, it's a fun exactly. sandbox, so they can kick us out if they want to. But uh, that's why we've got the app. And um, all of our content is there. We do a weekly Bible study called the Gilbert House Fellowship. We go through the Bible verse by verse in chronological order. Um, my weekly podcast where I interview people or talk about stuff that I think is interesting. Um, our PID radio podcast, which goes back to 2005. And we're getting a lot of those archives moved over to the app as well. Um, what else we got on there? Well, you can also purchase uh, things oh, through our store. Unraveling store. Revelation. You can also go to, sl- oh, as far as the shows, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. All of that's on the app, but uh, we also have a store there at the website, gilberthouse.org. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a button that says donate. Is there a, there is a donate button there, yeah. Um, or you can go yeah. to gilberthouse.org slash donate. And we have a project going on that you and I talked about, we, we all talked about before we started recording. It's Build Barn Better. We've got a big metal barn shop building on our property. And it's it's interesting that you said that we've got that you say we have fertile ground because the ground that we live on is not fertile. (laughs) Worst possible ground you can ever imagine. It's fine for cattle to graze on, but it's basically rocks with a bunch of grass growing out. Or in the spiritual spiritual (laughs) sense. Yes, that's the irony. The Lord put us on a very rocky, infertile ground to try to let the seed of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't and know. His we got a great, great crop of crap grass growing out there. We do. <laughs> yeah, really doing really yeah. fine. But uh, um, he is allowing us to now. He's after been living here for eight years. He finally said last fall. He said now, mm-hmm. the barn, because we we take up all the space in our house. And he said now the barn. Mm-hmm. So we asked people to help with build barn better. Many many people have already helped with that. We have. Uh, it's this massive 30 by 40 shop building mm-hmm. that is just a big open space that we're going to insulate and have the floor redone and put in an HVAC system and better windows and mm-hmm. and uh, lighting. We're going to put our studio and shipping and yeah. and uh, probably editing a lot of things in there. Yeah. But I keep seeing the Lord showing me, assuming that I'm right, it's like he wants something else done in there. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. a gathering of prayer warriors or or maybe people getting together just to study God's word 
whatever it is, it's for more than just what Derek and I envision. Mm-hmm. So we're open to whatever God says. That's what you do with the barn. Mm. So if Wonderful. you want to help with barn, we call it build barn better because it's tongue in cheek. And, mm-hmm. you know, instead of build back better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Take that new world order. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for, for eight years, it's been a parking garage for our yard tractor. And uh, we finally decided, you know. And storage make, for your mom's storage, Yeah, storage for old Which furniture. we donated all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's cleaned out. The next phase begins in just a couple of weeks where the flooring contractor will come out and work on that. But uh, uh, if, if listeners are so led, but certainly more than anything else, uh, prayers for mm-hmm. uh, just to make clear the Lord's will for us in using that space. I mean, um, we can certainly make do as mm-hmm. we've been doing for the past year of mm-hmm. basically moving into Gilbert House Ministries full time. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, taking up pretty much most of the house as, as usable mm-hmm. space for one thing or another. But um, we, we just want to create more video content and uh, a better space for that would really, really be helpful. Uh, we're not planning to get fancy out there in the barn. We're not going to put up walls and create, you know, okay, we're going to cut off this barn, build it. No, it's just still going to be a big space. It's just this mm-hmm. area over here is where we'll do this. And this area over here is where we'll do that. Um, so we're, we're trying to be good stewards of the resources that we've been entrusted with. Um, and, and we're working with Christian companies. So it's, it's really yeah. cool, which is easy to do where we live. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's the real right. blessing of being out here. You, you just wind up at, you know, at the Dollar General, you wind up having a discussion on end times prophecy in the deodorant <laughs> aisle. So it's really amazing because that never happened before we moved here. <laughs> no, it's really neat. The Lord has uh, well, really has his hand yeah. on this area, so uh, this cool. part of Missouri. So we thank him for it. All right. Thank well, everyone for helping out. And we love that you've had us on your show. Thank you very much for everything you do. Truly today. appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you so very much. It, it's it's uh, an honor for me to host you. And and I, I'm, I'm sure it won't be the last uh, to have both well, of we, you on. It, we hope it isn't. We will love it. You got to come on with VFTB. Yeah. Have oh, you and Ricky you on go. to talk about uh, mm-hmm. your mission there and uh, the, the imminent move. Would love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sharon, would you close us out in prayer today? Holy Father, we are so, so grateful to you that you allow us to come together virtually. Derek and I are in one space, but Yvette's in another, and all of you who are listening, you are in your home or in your car or perhaps at work, and we are thankful that you are there. We thank the Lord that you are there. You are there for a purpose at this very moment because the Lord has preordained it that you would listen to this, not because Derek and I or or Yvette, because we have something that is unusual to say. It is because the Holy Spirit has something for you, listener, to hear. And my prayer right now is that the Holy Spirit will indeed Open your ears and your heart to that message. If you already know Jesus as your Savior, then perhaps he wants you to to expand on that. He wants you to learn more about him, to to draw nearer to him. Perhaps there's a special ministry, a, a road he wants you to walk down. Oh, but if you don't know Jesus, oh, please, please, whatever it is, we know because we've been there. That you have questions in your heart, no matter what your age is, no matter what your circumstances, you have questions that are unanswered, but they can all be answered through Jesus Christ. He died for you. All of the sins that Adam, you know, caused to fall upon humanity, 
Because of that one weak moment, all of that sin can be washed away in the precious fountain of blood that flowed from the veins of our Lord and Savior who created you and then took on flesh so that he could be your sacrifice. He could die so that you would not have to spiritually die forever. Because without Jesus, that is your destination. Mm -hmm. So accept him. Understand that you are a sinner. Accept that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ can heal you, can save you, can remove those sins, and then confess that to others. It's the ABCs. Admit, believe, and confess. Because confession through the mouth shows the world what is in your heart. And if you have a body of believers or someone that you know that you could go to who is a, already a, 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 a Christian, go to that person and tell them what you have done. Confess. Talk about it. Learn. You're going to need some, some teaching. You're going to need some mentoring. You're going to want to know how to read the Bible, where to start, what it all means. But if you don't know anybody, I encourage you, find a Bible, read the Gospel of John, and then read 1 John, because the Gospel of John will show you how to be saved, and 1 John will help to assure you that the Holy Spirit is with you. And just know this, that we love you, because once you accept Christ, you are part of our family. You are part of a massive body of believers that go so far beyond the sum of our parts because the Holy Spirit is with us. So right now, ask him to come into your life. That is our prayer for you. In Jesus' holy name, I ask all these things and I praise him for his plans. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Sharon. What a beautiful prayer. Oh. Thank you again for joining me uh, tonight. Be sure to share this message, share this podcast. If you're watching it on YouTube, be sure to watch it again and again and uh, share it with your friends and your family. And once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you again. God bless you. And we will see you very soon. We will. Thank you very much God for having you. us, Yvette. Take care.